On today's episode, we have Jason Henderson. Hendo is a retired Master Sergeant in the Naval Special Warfare Development Group. For context, the NSWDG, as it's referred, is the absolute pinnacle of US Tier 1 Special Forces. Hendo is one of the most experienced Special Forces operators on the planet. He's operated during the most active and violent period the modern Special Forces era has seen. He served 30 years with the SEAL teams, conducting 16 combat tours from Kosovo right through to Afghanistan. Hendo was once described to me as the alpha of the alphas within his US Special Forces community. I was privileged to work with Hendo for over two years and still have the pleasure of working with him today through tier one team building. If you want to win at team building, tier one is basically where you go to do it. Hendo is a black belt under Dave Camarillo in judo and a black belt in jiu-jitsu under Gustavo Machado and is an extremely impressive power lifter. He's also the founder of the Four Pillars Collective, a not-for-profit team of elite veterans who are committed to upskilling police with tools and techniques proven to reduce and even prevent conflict with the aim of helping to restore confidence in law enforcement. In this episode, we're gonna talk about extreme violence, the role of routines in performing under pressure, and how to seize control of your emotions so you can deliver when it matters most. I hope you enjoy. Jason Henderson, welcome to the Accelerating Excellence podcast. Um, great to have you on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Um, I want to start off with asking you about where this, 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 you've obviously gone on to excel, have an incredible career in the military, but where did the, what was the first moment the military entered your world as a possible career path? You know, I come from a small town in Oregon of about 1,500 people, and I was a farmer, uh, grew up on living on, in this really isolated 1,500 people pop, you know, population town, and um, everybody stays there. Everybody grows up there. Everybody stays there. I thought at a very young age that I would just become a farmer and or like everybody else, or, you know, I got into the timber industry, and I was a logger for a short period of time. But I didn't really have any TV channels. We had like two channels, you know, and one I think was home shopping. So well, I read a lot of books and, you know, I read all the encyclopedias and I read a lot of nonfiction. All I read about was other places, all these amazing places in the world. And I thought, well, man, I nobody ever leaves here. Nobody's ever done anything. I, I'd like to get out and do something. My uncle was the first one that I'd met that's in the military. He had just gotten back from Vietnam. This is in the early 70s. And... Um, he was just kind of a wild dude. And I, I remember like as stoic and calm as everybody in my area was like, he was not unhinged, but something completely different than what I'd ever seen. In fact, I remember we were like slap boxing around in the backyard and uh, I grabbed a beer bottle and kind of just held it out just like playfully and he kicked it out of my hand and he caught it midair and then turned around and walked away and was drinking. It. And I just thought, that is the most interesting human being. That is fucking cool. That ever is very cool. Whatever yeah. he does in life, I want to do that. So I went from wanting to become a farmer slash astronaut straight into, you know, whatever that dude does, I want to be a part of it. And so um, that kind of guided me along the path of what is the military and what's going on. And I thought eventually, you know, that's my, it's something as an Americans, we all think I have to serve, I have to give back, I have to do something for the greater good of society, and not just focus on myself and, you know, my immediate community. So when the 
first Gulf War started in the early 90s, that's when I kind of transitioned over and was like, okay, well, I can go to college, which at the time I hated school. I was burned out. I was tired of war again. Like I said, I had read about all these amazing places. So I thought, well, I'll go join the military for four years and see what happens. Okay. And what was your the first unit you entered? You know, the first thing I did actually was the Army National Guard. And I was just kind of all my hunting buddies and I got together and we all joined at 17. It's your junior year of, I don't know what you guys call it over there, but your junior year of high school. So the year right before you graduate. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, so we all went and joined and you spend like that summer at boot camp and then you do your senior year of school. Then you do advanced training uh, the year after. I just didn't, the army didn't match with me because I've always had a healthy disdain for authority I don't like rules. I don't like being told what I can and can't do. So I knew I, I enjoyed the military. I enjoyed the guns and explosives and excitement of it, but uh, I just didn't like the, the regimental part of it. You know what I mean? So that's why I, I transferred services over to the Navy and went straight to the SEAL uh, program and um, graduated and went straight to SEAL. I never spent one second on a ship at any time in the Navy, which is a big risk, right? you join and you're like, well, I want to be a SEAL and the attrition rate is, is outrageously high. So, you know, if you don't make it, then you're stuck floating around on, on a ship and sailing around the world or a submarine or something and living in this even worse isolation. So uh, the the consequences are were significant. So that motivated me to make sure I, I was focused on my training and performing at a high level. And then yeah. you know, I stayed for 30 years at that point. Yeah, and obviously the seals. Um, you know, it's no secret that the seals, the selection process in itself, you know, highly demanding, physically, mentally. What what early on in your or, or early experiences gave you the confidence to be like, oh, I'll I'll have a crack at that and, and give it a go. Where did that well, come from? I was always fit. I competed in a lot of sports. I played American football. I wrestled. I which I lived in a very big wrestling community, which definitely um, helped me a lot with my drive. Um, in fact, I went and talked to several CEOs in Silicon Valley and they were just saying, Hey, how are you guys dealing with the entitlement of today's kids that, that you're getting? And I said, we don't, they're great. We don't have any problems at all. And they're, and, and what it came down to, and they're just like, we're struggling. Like we can't get these kids to do anything. They're extremely entitled. We get free snacks or whatever. They complain about that. They complain about everything. They, we can barely get them to work. And what it came down to was recruitment. We, were, we recruit from play, things like wrestling teams or high performance uh, organizations where kids have to wake up in the morning and they, they're on stri stringent diets and they are training in the morning on their own. Then they're going to school all day and then they're having to maintain this grade point average to keep them in sports. And then after, after school, they're immediately back on the wrestling mat, pushing themselves to extreme levels still maintaining this diet, going home, still doing their chores, still doing all the things that you have to do as a kid. And they're doing it week after week without anybody prodding them. They're doing it on their own. So I can get somebody like that and teach them literally anything and have them performing at an extremely high level because they understand struggle. They understand perseverance. They understand focus versus, you know, Silicon Valley is recruiting from grandma's basement and these entitled kids that have never accomplished anything except they're really good at hacking and really good at social media or whatever. And I understand there's a need for that, but you know, it's much easier for me to get guys for, uh, from a longevity standpoint, if I can pull them from these different organizations where they're already persevering. 
Yeah, it makes, it makes total sense. You know, as a, as a young guy going into the teams, you know, what was um, what what did you what did you enjoy most about the role? It was the adventure more than anything. I I, I like performing at a high level, and I'm always trying to optimize my performance. Um, all everybody I worked with was the same way. So when I first went into the seals, the adventure began. I started going off to Asia and all these exotic places that I had read about South America and stuff, and and immersing myself in all these different cultures. And really learning, you know, the, the differences between cultures, the differences between ethics, the differences between, um, you know, what their dreams are and our dreams are and and having realistic expectations in each. But, you know, living here is the greatest thing in the world because we can become anything in, our, in these free societies. They're not so much. So, but you see how they really push themselves with what they have. You know, you see it with uh, footballers in, in Europe, soccer players, you know, they're these kids only have so much. So they're really pushing themselves to a new level. So I like kind of tabbing into all these different cultures and being like, what is helping you to optimize with the minimal amount of, of items or um, financial, you know, not, not having the money to get them where they need to need to get to. Um, and, and seeing everybody that performs at a high level does it through struggle and does it through, you know, hard work and perseverance. And so I enjoyed traveling around to these different places, but then I got bored, like you like you do, when you kind of achieve a, a peak level at, at where you're at. And so I transferred, I volunteered for the tier one command, and I had to go through another six months of selection there, and where we have a huge attrition rate. So essentially, they get the best from every SEAL team, and they pull them to the tier, tier one command, and then uh, we have another selection there, and then we weed them out at that point. And even when I was at the tier command, tier one command, which I was for 20 years, I could get fired at any given moment. So you're constantly having to perform, evolve, develop, uh, raise every everybody up around you, and and uh, you know maintain this very high level of uh, you know work, not just work effort, but performance levels. Yeah, it must be. I guess to to, to most people, it'd be an incredibly intimidating environment. I mean, how did you feel that the, the going on selection because? I guess initially you're competing against a lot of people. Imagine initially when with the seals, there's a lot of the people that have seen the movie version of it and they're kind of like, you don't want to go for it, but they kind of get weeded out quite quick. But then when you talk about going to tier one, I mean, that's just a whole new level. Like everyone that's applying to that selection process is probably strongest guy in their relative unit. I mean, the standards just must be insane there. Um, so, so how does that feel? And, and what did that summon from you? Did it, did, it, did it force you to ask new questions of yourself of who you are and what you're about? No, you do, you just set micro and macro goals. I was taking a look at what's my long-term goal. My long-term goal was to get to the tier one command. And then when I was at the tier one command, my long-term goal was to become an effective leader and be, a, a, you know, not just a, a good leader, but a capable man where I was the guy that everybody looked to uh, for, by example, right? That, which is the best way to lead it's a leader versus boss right so I, I would set these goals and every week i was just making sure that i was achieving those goals am i getting a little bit stronger am i getting a little bit more intelligent am i able to mitigate stress stressors better than um i was a, a week or two ago and i'm constantly improving and constantly pushing myself so that i can see what i'm capable of and i really i you never peak you're you always are getting to higher and higher levels 
and setting new goals like okay well i've achieved it up to this point well how do i how do i get all the way to transcendence how do i go to a whole nother level and you just keep setting these little goals and you know realistic goals really because if you push too hard in the beginning if i run too hard if i do too much then i'm then my body burns out a little bit or i, I start getting injuries so i longevity was very important for me um so that i could constantly keep doing these micro and macro achievements and what do you think were the characteristics that sort of distinguished those who i guess maybe not sailed through but you know got through that selection process and those that potential had the potential but maybe didn't just quite make the cut well there's a pros and con to it right so you everything is about the task the mission the goal you put everything into it so you tend to push everything out to the side you push away family and friends and all these other things that are a distraction and you solely focus on the goal and you know you have to do it to survive for the most part and to make it as long as i did i think 200 and something guys started when I started um, SEAL training back in the early 90s. And um, I was the only one that made it to 30 years. And that's just through attrition and that's through guys getting killed or injured or quitting. Most, in fact, just quit along the way because they just couldn't handle maintaining that type of performance level for a long period of time. So you know, I, th I think it's that focus of what is my goal, what is my purpose, and and pushing all the way, um, going through every facet of what makes me develop and and get to this optimized optimized level. But then, you know, the problem then becomes when you retire, and and you know the managing not that identity being gone, and then going, okay, well, I'm not that anymore, and guys tend to burn out or you know, disappear into the mountainsides and are just like, I'm done with all of it. Or they, they'll kind of be a hangarounds and I'll still work at the command or work in, the, in minor jobs or whatever, administrative jobs. I don't like that whole concept because I, I'm i like, grow up. Like, it, you're like the guys that keep showing up after high school to parties with your letterman's jacket on talking about the old football game. It's like- Understood. It's like, what next? I want show me something what you're doing next. Show me something where you're. you're and is this where the goal settings come in as a permanent theme throughout your life? You just you've got to get a new mission. Yeah, and, it, and it's tough too because you're like, okay, well, I wasn't what I was. Um, I don't know what I'm going to become. You know, you you look back, hey, to the guys at your old unit and stuff, and they're just like, hey, get out of here, go grow up. Like you're not part of us anymore. That big machine keeps rolling, and then you go to your family and you're like, hey, hey, team, you know. <laughs> let's all get together i'm finally retired and i'm just like where you've been dude yeah yeah what do you mean so you guys become lost and they're already you know not to get too too much into the darkness of it but they're already on a lot of pharmaceuticals because that's standard issue <laughs> for yeah. the government whether you're in military or law enforcement or any of the first responder type units or if you're a professional athlete whatever you've got all these injuries from pushing yourself to extreme levels then now you know guys have addictions guys go to alcohol or, or whatever it is so uh it's a big challenge and but it's 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 easy if you just think okay my goal was to get become a seal then my goal was to become a tier one seal then my goal was to become a leader among seals and now i'm retired i'm like okay well, what are my next goals and as long as i'm always focused towards optimizing myself and i focus more towards benevolent things now you know i'm trying to work towards the not just for myself but for my friends family community country then i'm like okay i'm on the right track and 
and, and I'm refocused and and uh, setting those micro macro goals again. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's great advice, and I'm sure a lot of people will be able to resonate with that. Um, you know, I think that those goals clearly almost orientate your psychology when there is chaos, when you don't know where you're at, set the smallest goal possible, pivot towards it, and then it, it, it can grow from there. For a moment, I'd love to bring it back to, I guess, your time in, in, in tier one. And I wondered if there was a, if there's a specific moment or period in time you could recall where that, that I would describe as a peak experience or like a blue head moment where you're at your peak as a performer, you know, where it's all coming together, the compounding effect of all that training, um, effort, blood, sweat, tears that created this almost perfect storm of you being able to demonstrate your skill or potential as a, an individual group or team. I mean, is there a moment in particular that stands out to you as a, as a peak experience there? Well, sure. There's thousands of them because I did 16 combat tours. There's nothing more exciting and a greater challenge than fighting on the battlefield. And especially against, you know, I wasn't just going against run-of-the-mill guys that were re rebellious. I was going after the highest threat targets or I was doing hostage rescue missions. So when you're you're training and pushing it's, it would be like going to the super bowl or world cup or something like that like you pushed yourself your whole life to develop just for these one little moments these few minutes to really go into what is the most overused term now is which is the flow state you know every, I, I see people all the time talking about and I, there, there's a big confusion between rhythm and and flow state when i what i consider flow state is when i would everything around me I push my body beyond where what it's capable. Everything around me goes into slow-mo, but I'm on. I'm just completely on. Every shot is perfect. My hand-to-hand, -hand, I'm transitioning from one room, hand-to-hand -hand combat, the next room doing surgical shots, to the next room saving somebody, to the next room, you know, just one thing after another with explosions and chaos and all these things going on around us. And I'm just gliding through all of it, almost like I have divine hands helping me along. Um, and that, this would happen quite often where I, I thought, well, at any given moment, I'm going to die, but it doesn't matter. I'm only focused on the task. I'm only focused on what my purpose is, and that's to save people or to, to capture, uh, you know, one of these high value targets. And talk to us about the team aspect of that, because it's when you talked about that word rhythm, there's certainly a rhythm that comes with a team in those scenarios. And how do you how do you set yourself up so that it, it does glide or it does feel like there's this divine intervention in terms of you accessing everything you got in the locker? It's it's spending a lot of time together and it's, it's challenging. You know, we do really well with each other because we're constantly planning struggles and contingency plans, right? So we push ourselves, we create struggles, artificial struggles, you know, Murphy's law is a real thing. Anything bad that can happen will happen. So we train What's the worst thing that can happen and how do we how do we mitigate the, these issues and work our way through it so you're constantly flowing in a direction for example if i'm teaching somebody a hostage rescue mission i would start off by teaching them a class demonstrating it walking them through it walking them through it faster and faster and faster so they're starting to flow now adding distractions darkness smoke strobes you know um people in various costumes, pig's blood, whatever I'm doing, all these things 
to create this artificial atmosphere of what's the worst possible guys wounded you're hurt this happens you know i'm constantly challenging them the helicopter just went down now what are you going to do so you're constantly critically thinking this can transfer over into any organization all you have to do is is red sell it so take a look at how would i crush my own company you know how would i do it internally how would i do it externally what are all the different things and just sit there and round table with a group of people and be like, what is the worst case scenario? How, if the market fluctuates, if this happens, you know, whatever, what's the worst case scenario. And if you're constantly having a plan all the way through, then when these obstacles appear, you just flow your way through it. And, and you're, you're constantly maintaining that momentum and momentum is the way we always get to our goal. Mm -hmm. Inevitably from time to time, there's those moments where we do metaphorically get kicked in the nuts and um, there's a moment of shock or something has changed that perhaps we hadn't anticipated. And maybe our mind does almost, um, I guess, pause for that second. In those moments, and I'm sure you've experienced some of those in, in the situations you're describing there. What's the sort of first thought that kicks in in terms of getting a grip there? Breathe. I need to get maximized oxygen in my brain. So anytime I'm, I'm getting into a situation that takes me aback for a second, the fastest way to get out of it is to think. And I, the only way I can think is maximize oxygen in my brain. So immediately I'll pause for a second. I'll in, take as big of an inhale as I can through my nose. As we know that your nose hairs will filter out all the dirt and particles and nonsense. Nitric oxide's activated. It's going to give you 18% more oxygen into your bloodstream, which is going to flow back up to your brain. And I'm going to go, okay, now I'm more capable of critical thinking. And sometimes just taking a pause and, and setting back and, and observing everything that's around you while I'm maximizing the oxygen in my brain, then it's going to help me with those, with those um, you know, very difficult decisions and have those, the critical thinking help push me through. And again, the preparation ahead of time of preparing for everything bad that could possibly happen in your life will, yeah. will help you flow, flow your way through it to maintain the momentum. I mean, what, what was, what was one of the most more stressful moments you, you experienced in your time? Well, all my blue and redhead scenarios are the same. It's war. It's, it's, you know, I can think of a, a time that, there was probably 50 of us and we were going to an area that was heavily um, covered with machine guns, enemy positions and everything were, were very strong. We were like, this is a really bad mission. And I remember as we were walking down the hill, we're in this big flying V thing, covering the entire desert, walking down the hill towards this village. And we're getting intelligence reports from uh, the aircraft that's above us saying, hey, they're preparing, they're getting into positions, they're fortifying all these machine gun nests, they're getting ready for you as we're walking down there. And our um, our squadron master chief uh, called over the radio and, you know, you would think they would be like, hey, this, you know, we're going to do it for the country or whatever, you know what I mean? Like some kind of motivational speech. And he just said, I just want to have it for the record. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. But it, it was the Inspiring. best thing to say in that at that time because we're all like, okay, the circumstances are against us. We're heading into almost a suicidal type of uh, effort, but we're all in this together. Our training is going to prevail. Let's pause and think a little bit how we're going to re-angle, change our positions, do whatever, so it gives us the most advantage and fully commit. And once we did that and fully committed in, then we completely wiped that target off the map and none of us got hurt. And it was 
you know, but I was like, I had already said my last rights and wrote myself off. And that's another thing is I found when I write myself off like that, that, and I only focus on the task, all my emotions gone out of it. And it's, which makes me almost impossible to kill. And I guess in an essence, that's the, the, almost the aim of training, isn't it? To, to make you, make you really hard, hard to kill. And you've talked to us about like the, the preparation some of the the routines in terms of breathing, controlling arousal, bringing it back to the thought, quality decision making. I mean, is there anything else advice you'd give to to people in general that are perhaps dealing with those moments where they filmed overwhelmed by challenge threat, um, in order to help them increase the odds? Because it's not just stress medication, right? It's emotional intelligence. Anytime you're put into a situation that is going to be challenging you should have good emotional intelligence and how do we do that first and foremost you have to have a better understanding of your biases um, triggers things that will set you off in the wrong direction because mm-hmm. if you don't have a good understanding of yourself and what your reaction is going to be during challenging times then you're going to react negatively everybody around you is going to react negatively to how you reacted and so on and so forth so first and foremost know yourself go okay well these things make me angry these are my challenges these are my weaknesses these are my strengths you know here's where i really need to focus on it's always going to be your weaknesses and how do i make my weaknesses my strengths um you know i I train a lot of law enforcement and special ops guys and i will sit them down and be like it's not just you having that realization of where your weaknesses are and where your triggers are and your biases but talk to your peers around you and what do they see in you you know i used to have to go and and do negotiations all over the world. And one of the groups that was the most challenging to negotiate was actually the State Department with all the U.S. embassies. Seems like all the dregs of society end up in these locations. But I'm trying to convince them that what we're doing is for the greater good. And they're just being like, nope. And none of the departments talked to each other. None of them got along. And it didn't matter how nice I was and how calm I was. My friends would tell me, your face looked like you wanted to pull that guy's head off. And I'm, and I'm like, well, that's what I was feeling inside, but my voice didn't show. And he goes, no, but your face did. Your face said it all. So what we would do is I would bring a really affable person with me. And as soon as they started noticing that just my facial expression was starting to trigger, then they would take over and redirect towards them because they had a, a you know, a, a more cheerful self or something that was easier to listen to, even though I had all the information. It didn't matter. It, it was, you know, the people I'm trying to convince into something were looking at me and they were becoming fearful so then they would redirect i'd redirect them over to a more affable person yeah it sounds like a great example of like leveraging feedback right but actually putting it to work a, a, a feedback in general is a massive part of any elite performance environment culture training program how, how does feedback work generally in the, in the in the unit you're working in it's it's the most important thing we can't get better without feedback i everything we do has an after actions report even if we just do a, a slight blurb of one every single day before i go to bed at night i ask myself what did i do right today what did i do wrong and how can i do it better and i really sit and listen whether it's coming from divinity or from wherever and i'm like okay well today you did these things right or, or what you did wrong was you need to be off your phone more when you're with your daughter or what you know little things like that that are just slight incremental improvements I'm constantly in this after actions type of uh, environment. So it's not just struggle that builds us up, but it's that post act that really develops us because we're like, okay, immediately what happened? What went wrong? How do we mitigate and make sure that that never happens again? Which is one of the things that made us so successful as a unit 
was if one of us got wounded or shot or whatever, we would immediately deep dive it. How could this possibly have happened? What was exactly your angle? What was exactly your position? Uh, how was our communication when we were moving through this situation? Let's go drill it. Let's go test it. Let's go evolve it so that this never should happen again. And so we're constantly um, getting incrementally better. So feedback is crucially important because if we look at emotional intelligence and we look at us having an understanding of our biases and our and, thing, and things that trigger us, then I have to manage it. That's the, the next step. How do I manage my emotional intelligence? And again, it's not just coming from me going, okay, well, I, could, I need to be more cheerful. I need to watch my facial expressions. I need to rehearse my negotiations or whatever in a mirror. These were all things that I had to do. Um, but also go reach out and get that peer support around me. Okay, here's where I'm at. Here's what I'm thinking. What do you think? And how will this help me? And just ask a lot of different people. When we do mission planning, even though I was the leader, I would come up with the whole plan and I would ask everybody around me. And it tended to be that the best ideas came from the bottom, from the lowest, most um, motivated of us, you know, the younger guys. And, and it was culturally appropriate for them in that unit to, to speak up, right? Yes, we, we have a round table uh, policy. We have an open door policy. Um when I went out to Silicon Valley and was working with a lot of those organizations, that was some of the biggest challenges that they had is they really didn't know what was going on underneath them. And up at the higher level, everybody's just telling each other what they want to hear. So really sitting down and having, you know, very frank discussions with everybody on what are your challenges? What are your struggles? What's going on here at work that's not making you as successful as possible? And deep diving into every person from a personal level, but also from a department and understanding how they're working and how they function and make sure everybody's communicating all the way around. That's the best ways. You never want to have anybody that's in fear of, of making a statement up because he, we actually celebrate dissenting. If somebody is the, you know, you always have the crabby guy in the corner that's grumbling and but if you really stop and listen to them, like, okay, what exactly is it that you're grumbling about? Let's all have a discussion. What's going wrong with this department? Grumbling guy, what do you have to say? The dissenter. They tend to have really good ideas. And then go, okay, well, let's collectively come up with solutions to all these ideas. And then if we all agree upon it, the grumbler can't talk anymore because he's made his point. And if we all say, hey, well, here's as a vote, here's the direction we're all going to go with. As long as he joins and, and focuses in on our, our collective effort, then we all are succeeding. You know? And is that something you think the organization selects for? People who are, are willing to express their opinion and, yeah. The most important thing that we can do as a Western society is have free will and to be sovereign and not and get out of this groupthink mentality, right? It's a socialist mentality. So being able to state your opinion and make sure that you you your opinion has some evidence behind it but you can't you, you know just whining isn't isn't uh, a successful way and, and how do you deal with that as a leader because there's that fine line isn't there between stating your opinion and being a whiny bitch so as a leader i imagine by the time these guys have got to you in in the team or the, or the unit they're they've probably had <laughs> probably been technically prepared to deliver that well but, but how do you enforce it and ensure that it is productive and constructive and it doesn't become an excuse to whine? Right. Everybody's going to whine. Everybody's going to complain about something. Just accept that that's part of the fact. If you're a leader, 
it, it just is what it is. And, and we actually made whining kind of funny. So a lot of the guys that would were big complainers, it was just hilarious when when they would say these things. So because in the end, we're still going to do it. So it doesn't really matter you know, yeah. if they're complaining about it or not. But I think it, it was establishing rapport with everybody and building trust with everybody that if somebody starts complaining, just be like, hey, stop. You need to come up with something. I don't mind if you whine, but you have to have some solutions behind it. Yeah. Because otherwise it's whining just a whine and there's nothing productive that's going to come out of it. And if you don't have those solutions and you want us all to sit down and come up with solutions to what it is that you're complaining about, okay. But because I also work for the government, it's just sometimes like it just is what it is. Yeah. So let's try and figure out the best way to make this enjoyable while we slog through the suicide mission of this horrible thing. Like I said, with my uh, master chief saying, Hey, this is the dumbest thing I've ever done, but he was out in front of us going, here we go. Brilliant. And what about, I mean, high performance organizations. Um, I mean, we've seen it, that, that conflict is something that's sometimes inevitable, especially when you've got a bunch of motivated, but like alpha males who have all, you know, think highly of their own opinions and, and also genuinely want to win. Right. And want to get things across that can cause flock conflict. Any advice to people that are in those environments and, and need to navigate that? It, it's up to the leader to be very calm. So in conflicts, you're going to have personality differences and it doesn't matter what organization you're a part of. And it's funny because we uh, we talk about quite often that I could have a guy in the SEALs who I hate more than anybody that I would probably <laughs> like to see harm come to. Um, and there's plenty of them, you know, as I came up over the years, but I would see them at a party with people who were same at a party with a bunch of lawyers or something. And I'm like, these people haven't had the same struggle. These have people haven't had the same struggle. I'm still going to talk to the guy I hate more than anything else Understood. instead of talking to everybody else that's there, because at least I have a commonality with him and we both went through the same struggles. And then maybe in the end, he and I will find some commonality so we can tolerate each other, but you just are going to have conflict sometimes. And it's up to the leader to go, okay, Conflict, healthy competition is good. Conflict is bad. So let's find out what exactly is the problem. Is it just a personality difference? And if that's the case, you guys just need to focus on work. Stop having conversations with any, about anything outside of work while you're at work. Sure. You go home, go your separate ways, have nothing to do with each other. But while you're at work, I just need you to focus on what your job is and not get into personality issues. And if one person saying too many things is causing um, conflict within his department, then you might have to isolate him or possibly even just kind of push after giving him a few talks and explaining to him what is what he's doing is having a negative effect on the collective, then you, you might have to get rid of him at some point. And we were yeah. not shy of firing people. So and this is a really interesting topic. I speak to a lot of people in leadership roles um recently. This this concept of discipline and creating a hard sort of left and right of arc of what is tolerable and what's not. And sometimes you do have to ultimately pull the plug on someone. Uh, and have, have you ever been in that situation where you've, you've had to manage someone out of the organization? Yeah. Uh, I was, I was one of the last guys that would fire somebody. I really felt like I wanted to put in the work with them and develop them and find out what it is that that really is their struggle. A lot of times it's family life or things like that. And so I'm like, Hey, maybe just need some time off or maybe I need to do something else. They feel like in their heart, like they have to do this job and they have to, but they're not doing it at a 
a great performance level because they're having so many struggles that we're outside. And there's the risk job. attached, right, to not doing the job well with what you're doing more so than you know, the average so role. I would do the most that I can with them. And then I would still support them and be like, hey, you're going to have to go, but I want you to go and do something that you really would enjoy or something that's really going to help you on a personal level. And so I would kind of guide them and protect them heading in those areas. There's people I've, I've gotten, I had a, a narcissist leader, um, uh, one of my group commanders, who is the worst human being I've ever worked with in my life. I still to this day, I really struggle with trying to forgive what a horrible dude this guy was. He was just right, okay. an absolute monster. What specific, and, uh, what specific brand of monster? He was just a weasel. Like he was always undermining. He was all, he wanted to make everything about himself. And, you know, he wanted to make everything a major exercise. And when you have a major exercise, it makes him look good. But the rest of the guys weren't learning from it because in the end, we're all just bits and pieces of this wheel. I'm more focused on the little bit of wheel that I own because I need to keep them alive. Mm -hmm. So I would put all my effort into that and making them better. Yeah. Every year we would have, I'd like to have an exercise. So we, we now communication issues and stuff with other units but he wanted to make everything this right and then once i said hey we're not we're not doing that it, the guys need training the guys need to get better at what their specific mission is this is too big of a distraction and it's going to hurt them when they get on the battlefield then he started undermining and being like oh well you know hendo's not supporting me and this and that and he's doing this and, it, and he would use little half truths and negativities and he was just perpetually undermining he was a, he was the biggest weasel i've ever met in my life and the guys were like, well, how do we get rid of this guy? He's he's absolutely a beast. And I was just like, well, with narcissists, the best way to get rid of them is just get out of their way. I just didn't have his back anymore. I stepped back. I I didn't do anything to get him fired except get out of his way, stop supporting him, stop having his back. And eventually uh, all the truths came out and they were like, you're gone, dude. Like you, yeah. you've been dissent the entire time and you're a terrible person. And when you have somebody like that as a boss, it's hard because you know, you're stuck with it. And you're but I was just like, well, I just need to be the buffer between him and the guys. I need to make sure that the guys are getting everything they need so that they're their best in, at their mission. And I need to, you know, I need to take the brunt of it on myself so that, um, you know, it, it didn't trickle down and have this horrible negative effect on, on everybody that was around us and so and it was hard and it was a struggle and i see him occasionally um like at the airport or something you know mean mug me and he knows i'll beat the hell out of him like he's a total wuss but he's still he's still like does these little antagonistic things and i have to really be like look man just let it go like he's obviously got a psychological price i see that he teaches leadership which is hilarious i think he wrote a book he's you know, I see him on like Joe Rogan things. I'm like, this guy's a jackass. Like, incredible. Even, like, if the truths came out about him, you know. I mean, that, that's an interesting one to ask your opinion on, actually, because obviously there's a lot of um, ex seals and ex military um, performers, particularly in the states, that have gone on to become, I guess, influencers is, is probably the right word. Um, yeah. and I imagine some have uh, way more credibility th than others. Um, yeah. But what's what's the thought within the community about some of the people that are are out there? Sort of ninety five percent of them, probably a higher percentage of that, are kind of fraudulent. They're they were in the seals for five minutes. Um, they're they're just putting out fake motivational tips that things that we never did in the first place. Um, but I I can't 
even though I'm kind of doing it here, I, I, I can't really go after them because then I'm hurting the brand, right? And, and nowadays, even though the guys weren't very good as SEALs, they're helping people now. They're doing things now that are motivating people or helping them to become better leaders or whatever. So if they're working towards the greater good now, then I don't have anything negative to say about it. But most of them, we call them the Hollywood SEALs, the guys that write books, the guys that are on a lot of, um, you know, giving a lot of talks and things like that. They're, they, they're writing stories and, and giving talks about things that guys like I did, you know, not yeah. anything that they had actually accomplished themselves. And we, we I mean, I, you and I have worked together before. We've seen in a few different levels. Yeah. And it's one of the things that I've always personally found fascinating that, I mean, I've had a privilege to have, you know, exposure to that world and, um, and, and at the same time to, to, you know, I've worked sort of since with elite athletes, the business executives but the humility for me in tier one is is just beyond beyond imagination when 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 you look at the the, the professionalism the training the trade craft the risk um and then that such nonchalance after it it's um it, it's beyond comprehension to me when you map it against like you say the hollywood guys or the that tend not to be from the tier one tier one units i guess no, you don't really see it because we we don't even look at rank as anything. We just look at position, right? If mm -hmm. anybody in my old unit ever would say, "Well, you need to listen to me because of my rank or whatever," we would smash that guy. Like, what are you, what are you doing? You're a weak man. Why would you ever pull rank on somebody? That's outrageous. Mm -hmm. So we would only look at position, and 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 we do everything like meritocracy reigns. You need to show yourself as a leader. You need to show and demonstrate. Your capabilities and be a capable man and then everybody else will look at you and you have to more than anything be reasonable you have to use reason and common sense in all your decision making you you can't just go well this is just the way it's going to be it's my way or the highway everybody's like, mm -hmm. who is this person so i don't even know if we call it humility i just think it's we were just goal oriented and we not we didn't have any entitlements because we're, we're all the same and any one of us can be replaced at any given moment you know, I thought, well, I did really good. I was there for 30 years. I had all these great accomplishments. And there is a, you know, I still get calls every other week from a bunch of the, of my guys and just with little questions. And so it makes me feel a little bit relevant, but I, you know, I'm not part of that club anymore. And, and uh, no matter what it is that I, I did, I was replaced 20 minutes later by people that may be even more capable and good, good on them. And I hope that's the case. And I try to create, you know, 10 guys that were very capable men to take from what, where I got them to and then take it up to a whole nother level and raise it up. But uh, it, I, I never, I've never understood the entitlement aspect of, I've never watched any of these SEAL TV shows. I've never read a book on it. It's not really a genre I'm interested in because I kind of lived in. It'll probably make me angry anyways, but you know, I'm just focused on, okay, what's next and what, what can I do to further constantly improve myself and to help my friends and family and build my community up. Absolutely. Sorry to interrupt the podcast, but before we dive deeper into the conversation, I want to express how grateful I am that you're voluntarily choosing to spend your time here with us. I also want to take a moment to ask for your support. I want to bring you the best podcast I can in terms of guests, engaging discussions and thought provoking conversations every week. And that's where you come in. By hitting that like button and subscribing to the podcast, you play a vital role. Simply put, when you hit that like button or subscribe, you enable the podcast to reach a much wider audience. 
And the wider the audience, the easier it is for guests within my network to convince their agents, management teams to free up their diary and come on the show. Thank you in advance for your likes and subscriptions. Now let's get back to business. And so, so what, what in, in terms of final question on leadership for me is, okay, throughout your, your 30 years there, is there one leader um, that perhaps you've, you, you've seen or worked with or under even that to you really demonstrated what exceptional leadership is? Yeah, he, yeah, definitely. And there's been a couple, but um, one of them really stood out because he always had your back. He was always, he was like a dad. Like you would go to him with any problem you had and he would sit down and he would listen. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do to get you out of this situation or help you out so you can rise up. Because, you know, at the tier one level, we take a lot of risks. We'll take, we'll, we'll push the envelope and we go deep into that gray area, you know, good and evil and right and wrong and legal and illegal or whatever, you know, we're writing that fine line. And when you were on a rocket ship, this is my career. I would go on a rocket ship of really kicking some butt and then I'd get in trouble and crash a little bit. And then I'd go even higher up to redeem myself that crash a little bit. And then, you know, it was like that with me because I was very anti-authoritarian anyways, but um that's just part of the culture. And, you know, I would turn to him and be like, Hey man, here's what I did. But I, I owned it. I made a mistake. Here's what I did. That was wrong. What's your opinion? And he's like, okay, well go and do this or that. And well, we'll get you out of it. And as long as you're constantly performing at a high level and trying to keep everybody alive and making sure that we're successful in all of our missions, I, you know, I, I, I did really well. And so as a mentor, I would say it wasn't, Specifically, anything more that he did with than just really have my back and all of our backs, and we all love the guy, you know. And um, he was just an even keeled, kind person that helped us through all of our. It sounds struggles. like trust is a is a key thing coming through yeah. there. You could, yeah, yeah no, it's it's imperative to have. We have to all trust each other, even the people we don't like. We still trust them that they're going to yeah. do the right. Thing and is is it fair to say that's the benefit of having such a tough selection process? in that you know that probably even the weaker guys, I mean, that's certainly how I see it in terms of even the weaker, weaker guys that get through this process are at a damn high standard. Yeah, extremely high standard, yeah. Well, everybody talks about, you know, the SEAL teams, it's teams, it's all about, the, really it's an individual effort. You know, when I went through SEAL training, if I was laying in the surf zone, cold water crashing on me and guys next to me want to quit, I was like, good riddance. I don't, because when times get really tough, I don't want you around me anyways. So I was happy that everybody quit and attrition was high. And, and, uh, you know, then when I finally got up to the tier one level, even then when I went to selection to get to the tier one level, I was happy to see all them go too. And then at the end, you're like, okay, well, you're, it, that's probably the same as being a professional athlete. Like, okay, I've gotten myself to the highest mm -hmm. possible level. Now I'm around people that are, that are equal or slightly even better. So let's all raise each other up and constantly improve. And then that trust across the board is established because we've all had the same struggle. We've all been through the same challenges and we all are extremely dependent on each other. When asked when what our biggest fear is as a SEAL, everybody's going to say the exact same thing. My biggest fear is letting the guy down next to me. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I care about is being successful. I would rather die than fail them the guys around me and that's what really makes you a good team because i'm pushing myself to the extreme levels so i don't let everybody else down yeah and, and with such a high baseline that obviously creates 
um, a lot of pressure. And I guess another area I'd love to get your insight into is the other side of performance and training and competing, which is the sort of rest and recovery piece, you know, physically, not just physically, but like mentally or emotionally being able to switch off from that, that pressure that's there, right, to, to meet the demands imposed on you of teammates who are all absolute rockets in their relative specialities. I mean, in terms of switching off for you, like throughout your career, like were there, were there any specific rituals or habits you had? Yeah, definitely. Uh, the biggest one was coming home. So mm -hmm. I would come home, I would sit in the parking lot for a few minutes and I would just go, okay, well, I'm not a SEAL anymore. I'm not a, you know, a high performing operator. I'm dead. I need to go inside this house and, you know, breathe and be calm when I walk through that door and immediately start going to work, take out the trash, clean the dishes, mow the yard, whatever needs to get done, hug all my kids, give them a ton of love. You know, I had uh, that became my mission. That became my new job, my new focus. And I need to put a, a, the same amount of effort into that as I did into my job. I mean, uh, I have a house, I have only daughters. So there's times that I would go up to my door and I put my hand on the doorknob and I would hear screaming on the inside of these women conflicting. And I'm like, man, I wish I was back at war getting shot at. <laughs> this is so much easier to deal with than what is about to happen. So I'd have to take in that oxygen in through my nose, breathe, turn the doorknob, push it in, start doing critical thinking and manage whatever the situation was in a calm and relatable manner so I can de-escalate, you know? Yeah. And I had the privilege of um, uh, one of the, during the time we worked together, um, going out to Copenhagen and, and breathing we, we were exposed to an expert out there. I know you've developed a really good relationship with since um, and has informed some of the work you're, you're doing now. Could you share a little bit about how you've been leveraging that? And, and some yeah, of well, yeah, the guy we're talking about stick severance. And I, yeah, I spent great guy. Time talking to him. I ended up going through his uh, uh, master instructor course. And so he's a Danish free diving well record holder. Um, Multiple times. He's the first yeah. guy to hold his breath. I think it's 23 minutes or something, uh, face down in the water in a shark tank. Um, he's got like four or five world records and got his book of world records and stuff. So I that was one of the benefits of my tier one command because we had a lot of money. But I would just reach out who is the greatest in the world at this and who is their coach and who got them to this level. And so I, I would research anything, any topic that I'm interested in. I immediately go, well, who's the best at it? And who's their coach? And what, what literature can I find on it? Um, from a stress mitigation standpoint, you know, he and I work together quite a bit on how do we reset as quickly as possible. And mm -hmm. that breathing strategy of, you know, maximizing the amount of oxygen in through our nose, because he's a doctor also, so he has a good understanding of anatomy. And, you know, pausing and then it taking in a little bit more sipping in a little bit more mm -hmm. air and then doing that long eight second exhale breathing in for four sipping a little and long eight second um exhale. that was a game changer for me personally some of those simple techniques that you can teach people in yeah. 15 minutes at times but can like i said when i'm assaulting a target i'm going up to the door with my gun i'm inhaling through my nose i'm grabbing the door now i'm sipping and i'm exhaling as i'm pushing in and i'm very steady i'm very calm and i maximize the oxygen in my brain so i'm going to have very surgical shots it's the same when i'm coming home cracking that door open with a turmoil going on inside my house you know any situation i run into that's a high stress situation First and foremost, I got to breathe and maximize that oxygen in my brain so I think clearly. Absolutely. 
Okay, and so 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 home life is an important one to manage. What about the mental aspect when you're in the moment? Um, and I'm guessing the obvious in in the tier one, I guess the battlefield, um, which could be the NFL player, you know, on the pitch where you you've got acute split seconds. You have a great example there where you where you're going through an entry. I mean, are there any other bits and pieces that you can seek to maximize just within this five minutes? How do I summon or sharpen the axe as much as I can? Are there any mantras or techniques or drills to to control your attention or arousal that you've leveraged through your career? Yeah, it's just shifting from focus to focus. So, okay. and a big part of it was visualizing prior. Yeah. So as I'm as I'm move as I'm in a helicopter flying into a target. I'm already playing out contingencies. What happens if we get shot down? What happens if I get shot at when I step off this helo? What happens if I get shot at on on the, on the infiltration? Um, what happens on uh, actions on the objective? What's the worst possible case scenario? I'm playing this movie out in my head. Well, I, I teach um, uh, security to families, personal protection to families now, mostly high net worth families, and. It, visualization is one of the most important things. I'm like, before you even crack this door, I want you to think, what if there's somebody on the other side of the door? What if there's somebody in the parking lot? What if there's somebody standing by my vehicle? And start playing out, what is my re response and reaction going to be to each of these things so that I can avoid any threats? So visualization is a huge one. Um, being able to mentally play this movie out so that when I do get in action, then I'm going, I'm like, okay, whoa, this is happening. I'm breathing. I've already contingency planned. We talked about that too. So I'm already having natural response. So I'm constantly maintaining that momentum and flowing through whatever challenges and that, I, that I'm running and obstacles that I'm running into and I'm able to maneuver around them. So I would say those are, those are some of the biggest ones. And at the end, we've already talked about from a recovery standpoint, okay, whew, I made it through this day. I made it through this mission. I made it through this um, accomplishment, breathe for a second, relax, and then think, okay, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? How can I we have improved this and go right into that af after actions response? And it's just a very rapid rap after actions. And then later on, me and my peers and everybody can sit down and we can deep family, business, whatever, and sit down and deep dive deeper into it. Okay, let's all sit down now while we're eating and have a conversation and talk about what it was that we all saw based off of our immediate after after uh, actions report okay so while it's nice and fresh uh cap capture what's the learnings there and it in terms of hendo outside of i guess competing training are there any activities um that you 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 engage in to to switch off and detach how do you mean what other activities do I, oh, just from a recovery standpoint? Yeah, yeah, just all our mental, emotional switch off, um, fishing, yeah. shooting. I know you you grew up in, with, with horses, for instance, things like Yeah, I compete in powerlifting. I compete in uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I compete in judo. Um, one of the tricks that I do is right before I step onto the platform, step onto the mat, I have, I have my back to it. You know what I mean? And, and up to yeah. the last minute, I'll turn around and now I'm on and I'm like, okay, what is my task? And I start visualizing how I'm going to walk to the platform, grab the, grab the weight, right hand, left hand over my shoulder, tighten my shoulder. I'm playing this whole thing out. I'm going to go out on the mat. I'm going to, I'm going to reach out. I'm going to touch hands. 
And then when I get off the mat or get off the platform, I turn my back to it. I don't look at it again. I eat my food. I relax. I breathe. I calm myself down. I try to get as much recovery as I can into my muscles. And even when I'm in the gym, I'll, if I'm squatting, I'll turn my back to the squat rack. I don't look at it. I don't have anything to do with it. I'll listen to my music. I'll eat food. I'll do. I'll surf on, you know, on the phone. Just mentally relax and calm myself down. And then when I'm about three minutes out, I'll start putting things away, start setting them away. And then I start visualizing what I'm going to do. And then when I turn around, now I'm back on. So it's very clear, up. clear, very, clear very components clear. that on, compete, off, and then transition, decompress. Yeah, in the, in the seals, we it, when we parachute, we have a thing called six. Well, if you want to see a seal get lit up immediately, say six minutes. Because we'll be on a helicopter ride or an airplane ride, a boat ride or whatever, going to a target. Almost all of us are asleep. We're not thinking about anything. We're just like, I'm just relaxed. I'm trying to get as calm and, and relaxed as possible, get as much recovery in before I do this mission. Then they say six minutes and we start activating immediately. As soon as that means we're six minutes away from doing whatever it is that we're about to do. And so you, you kind of start shaking things out and getting stretched. And I'm checking my gun for the 3000th time to make sure it has bullets in it or everything's turned on and I'm kind of getting set. And then three minutes now I'm starting to elevate uh, a little bit more. I'm like, okay, what is my task? What's my mission? I'm starting to get into that contingency plan. And then one minute, when you get one minute now, I'll start to stand up walking towards that door. I'm getting, starting to get amped. I'm starting to get into this hyper-focused um, sense of reality. I can almost you almost start becoming superhuman and then 30 seconds and it's just like i'm on i'm in any second let me go freeze open the door let's let's push on and i'm completely locked on the task i don't care about anything else no emotion no response not what my family's doing not bills not anything else i'm just 100 percent on and focused on what my task is and i stay there until all clear the mission's over right beautiful i mean one, one of the things you touched on briefly is um you know you 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 compete at the highest level in terms of um a tier one military but you've also competed at a high level in your your powerlifting and your jiu-jitsu so it's black belt jiu-jitsu black belt judo and you've worked with some of the best best in the world in that space can you talk to me about your relationship with martial arts how that served you what that's taught you well it saved a lot of lives to be honest with you yeah. um in the first couple of deployments that i did we were just destroying everything we you know we were taught by vietnam veterans so nobody that had been in any real, real recent wars and real recent conflicts um from an unconventional warfare standpoint had anything to feed us and as far as here's what you guys want to watch out for or be prepared for it was all violence of action use the maximum amount of force as possible wipe the enemy off and uh then you'll be successful and you know less of you will get hurt but in reality in a very short period of time because we were a high thinking unit we're like we're doing a lot of collateral damage here you know i i'm a we're surgical fighters i don't ever want to hurt a woman child elderly innocent person you know what i mean and even if i devolve back to or you know go back to when i was a kid my mom had john wayne movies playing on loop and that was the reoccurring theme was from an ethical standpoint is you always do the right thing you never hurt innocence you always protect as much as possible you only use as much force as necessary just slightly above what the enemy is using so you're more successful than them and then if you're you know possibly you show mercy at the end of it uh 
when I started learning that, I'm like, okay, we need to get better at putting hands on people because guys would be getting tackled or somebody would be swinging at you with a shovel and guys immediately would just shoot. Shooting somebody is such an easy thing. It's such a, it's almost a cowardly act. It's, it, it takes nothing. There's children in Somalia that go around shooting people because they don't get their way. It's, I understand using it as from a surgical standpoint and getting your mission accomplished, but it's much more uh, manly to go in and put hands on somebody and control them. So I reached out to all the world's experts in hand-to-hand -hand combat, and I gave them all the scenarios that we had seen when we've been on the battlefield, fighting in hallways, fighting in stairwells, fighting, you know, in all these different types of scenarios, out in the open, whatever. Um, what's the best technique? And, you know, very few of them actually had, you know, solutions for it. Uh, there's only three or four guys that were really good instructors that were able to go, huh, okay, well, here's what I think. And then we would test it and, and develop it and, and create our own system. So once I started becoming better and better at martial arts and incorporating that into day-to-day -day life, and especially on the missions, I trained all my guys in it. And so my guys, three or four days a week, would be in, be in the fight room. And it ended up, we captured more people, we shot less people than all the other units that were around us. We were more successful because if you capture somebody alive, he's going to rat on 10 more people and you're going to go capture them and then so on and so forth. So we're doing the greatest amount of damage to the enemy by taking them off the battlefield. If you go in, you shoot somebody, case closed. We don't we don't have much evidence to build off of from that, right? So we ended up saving a lot of people, or you know, not killing a lot of people. We were extremely calm on the battlefield, my, my group specifically, my team specifically was very calm, very relaxed, and was more effective than all the other units because of martial arts and incorporating it in. Because it wasn't just us being proficient at putting hands on people. We're used to getting hit. We're used to getting knocked around. If you got hit with a shovel, okay, back off a little bit. You kind of change your angle. Guy's a knife. You disarm him or whatever. If it's a bad situation, you have to shoot, you shoot. But even then, we're calm and relaxed throughout the whole situation. We're not letting our emotions get the best of us. Fight, really good fighters have incredible emotional control and are just like, what is my task? I only need to focus on what my task is, and it's to take this person out. I train law enforcement a lot nowadays, through, especially through my nonprofit. And um, the, what I teach them is everything you're doing is being filmed. And if you have a, a negative emotional response, then everybody's going to default to police brutality. If you go up there calmly, grab, get control of this person without harming them or hurting yourself, then you're going to look more effective and you're going to reestablish that trust that everybody should have in law enforcement and being the pillars of society that protect and keep us safe. You used a word there that I think is a really important one, um, ethics. I mean, what does that mean to you or what? what Yes, that's a funny thing, right? You ask five people about ethics, and they're all going to give you a different answer. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. In the in the military, we're in U.S. military, we're guided by our national security strategy, and in it are four enduring pillars of security, prosperity, international order, and it's our ethics. And if your security isn't good, you're not going to have prosperity. And if you have, which is a lot of what's happening in the U.S. now, our security has been weakened, our prosperity's down a bit. Um, we're not going forward to help out anybody else anymore because we can't get our own act together. And nobody wants to listen to us who's supposed to be the gold standard of ethics on what we have to say if ethically we, we can't get our own, our own stuff together. So, you know, ethics to me is doing exactly what I said. And it's, it may appear a little antiquated, but we can simplify it by saying it's good versus evil. 
right? I'm doing the right thing. You, you always have intuition. You have that thing on your shoulder that's saying, hey, maybe you shouldn't go smack that guy, even though he's running his mouth, or maybe you shouldn't go this. And this other one's going, yeah, go definitely go hit him. And I listen to the bad guy for a long time because he's more fun. But, it, you know, I really had to rein myself back in from an ethics standpoint and go, is what I'm doing. If my daughter, if my three-year-old daughter is watching me right now, am I being a good father and I'm, am I making the right decisions? Or uh, am I doing something that's going to traumatize her and have a negative effect on the rest of her life? Because when you have children, you only got one uh, shot at getting their life right. And so I wouldn't want to do anything where I, I wouldn't have some, my daughter wouldn't have pride in having me as a dad, right? So I look at it as, you know, always pr protect the innocence, um, lift up the downtrodden, uh, you know, protect those that you can only use as much force as necessary to de and then de-escalate back down and be in control. So that, that's kind of how I measure things. I wanted to ask you about, you've, you've touched already on goal setting in a really insightful way. Um, and I want you to share an example that, that, you know, I know you, uh, forgive me for saying, but you, you had a, a birthday significant one, well, not too far ago, but there was a goal linked to that. Uh, with, with, with your deadlift and then bring it into the powerlifting side of thing, which is also part of your identity, right? Do you talk, talk us through that one? Sure. So I wanted to do something to really help with my longevity because I have very young kids. I have a three-year-old and a 12-year-old and I want to make sure that I'm a capable man for their entire existence as long as possible, at least. An old capable man. They're, they're capable and they're up, right. I want to be able to protect them. There should never be a point in my life as a father that I can't pick both my children up and get them off of harm's way. Get them, we call them get it off the X, right? The X being the most dangerous possible position. I should at any given point be able to pick up my entire family and carry them away simultaneously. Away. So I thought, well, how do I do this? So I'm like, the gold standard for me is uh, being able to deadlift and squat double body weight. And then I thought, well, why don't I set the goal for my 50th birthday to do double body weight? If I can pick up somebody twice as big as me, I'm capable. If I can do it 50 times, then I'm, you know, if there's a mass, if there's a bombing, if there's a, a mass tragedy, if there's a car, giant car accident, I can pull 50 people out of harm's way. And that's going to make me a pretty capable person. The cool byproduct of it is that I can't stop from aging. I can't stop from deterioration. But what I can do is I can get so far ahead of what's natural, the natural normal person uh, is that I, I that when I'm 80, I should be uh, as capable as somebody that's in a 40, right? And I, by doing that, I have to increase my bone density. I have to increase my tendon strength. I have to increase my overall body strength. That's why I, I rotate uh, fighting and powerlifting uh, on, on, you know, three days a week, I'll power lift and three days a week, I'll fight. And the reason is that I'm just hardening my body. So from the inside out through powerlifting, building up the bone density, tendon strength, everything else, and externally by taking kicks and punches and grappling and, and clinches and stuff, I'm, I'm hardening myself. And that seems to turn, turn me into almost an indestructible person. And it's going to give me the greatest amount of longevity. So yeah, on my 50th birthday, I got up at four in the morning. And I can talk about how I trained for it uh, in a bit, but I deadlifted double my body weight for 50 reps, which was, I weighed 250 pounds. So it was 500 pounds. Actually, 500 pounds deadlift. 
uh, deadlift. Yeah. And I did it, uh, four sets and two sets of five and I did it all within an hour. And, uh, right afterwards I ate a little bit of breakfast and then I taught, uh, fighting to police for the rest of the day. And I was fine. I really didn't, I didn't feel too bad. I wasn't like crushed or devastated or anything like that. I was fully functioning right afterwards. And the next day, a little bit of soreness in my shoulders, but not much. And the way I trained it was again, just body hardening. As I started off by deadlifting 500 pounds from the top of my knee, two inches above my knee uh, on a platform, uh, you know, for five sets of 10 because I had to get my strength, my grip up and I had to get my shoulders starting to get used to it. And every week I would lower it an inch. The first time that I lifted it from the ground was the day that I did it. Right. Okay. So I just slowly and incrementally um, conditioned my body. And this wasn't private, was it? You'd sort of made, you'd share to to colleagues, friends that this was the goal. So there was a bit of pressure on there on the day to, to do it. My, the way the way that I get myself to perform at high levels is I shame myself. So I immediately I'll set a goal and I'll go tell everybody what my goal is publicly. It doesn't matter. You know, I'll put on social media. It doesn't, I'll tell everyone. Yeah. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm like, I do not want to do this. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I'm like, no, everybody's looking at you. You're going to look like a fool. You're going to humiliate yourself. You're going to humiliate my, your family. My children are never going to speak to me again. My kids care less how much I can deadlift. But in my mind, from for yeah, me, yeah, yeah. Eve, I'm like, man, my diet's got to be on. I got to get my proper proper recovery every single night. You know, it's just I had a goal and I put all the facets into goal setting and and, and developed it so that it, it, that was my main purpose was a preparation. It took me four months to prepare for it. Oh, with some achievement. You, you talked to us in a really eloquent way about how martial arts, which is clearly something that's part of you, part of your DNA, and how you leverage that in your performance environment. How is the, I'd love you to talk about your perspective on powerlifting and that how, how that transferred to enhancing your ability to, uh, as an operator, because I think there are some misconceptions around, you know, the, the fitness. Well, in the nineties, like I said, nobody had been in war since Vietnam, not legitimately since Vietnam, a uh, little one or two tiny, you know, exercises really more than anything. Uh, police actions but um we'd always done these long distance runs and long distance i don't even know where the hell all that came from long distance swims long distance runs running the obstacle course 10 times with gear on um i went to the battlefield and i never once stripped down of my panties and go fast shoes and took off for a 20 mile run i never ran more than 100 yards ever so what the hell are we training that for It, it was ridiculous so I understand swimming to a certain degree and, you know, obstacle courses to a certain degree, but even then it, it, the whole way we trained didn't make any sense. We learned that very quickly. What I did do quite often was I would have the sniper come up and step into my hands and I'd have to push him up onto a, a, a wall so that he can have overwatch. I would have to be able to put in enough weight to smash a door in, ram my body through a door, kick a door in. I'd have to be able to put hands on people and find him. If one of my guys went down, I had to be able to go over there and grab them, even though they had another 50 pounds worth of gear on and run with them to get them away from, get them off the X. Because if I sit there dragging a guy because I'm too physically weak, I'm going to get shot too. And so is everybody else. I have to hurry up and overwhelm the enemy and get my buddies out of harm's way. So on a moment's notice, it was strength, overall strength that was most important. I had to push vehicles quite often, not just to get ourselves out of a situation if our vehicle got shot up, but also 
pushing vehicles that were filled with uh, explosives away from a village so we could clack it off farther off into the desert because we couldn't find the keys or hotwire or do whatever. And we didn't want to start it anyways because it might blow up. So we'd have to hand push it away. So over, overall strength was the most important aspect of being a special operator. And like I said, that physical conditioning, that battle hardening of me, us fighting several days a week and kicking and punching each other, it was regularly... I would be walking across a rooftop and fall through a thatched roof and be in a room full of guys and follow the enemy and have to turn it on. If I fell down, I was like, oh, I twisted my ankle. I can't, you know what I mean? It, they would just uh, cut my hand off. So it was imperative that my body was, was really well conditioned and being able to fight through adversity, you know, with fighting, you just wrap up your ankles or tie, tape up your wrist or whatever. And you keep doing it. You keep going. And, Every every fighter, every UFC fighter, every every person you see is all injured. One hundred percent of them are injured in one way or another, but they're able to fight through adversity and stay completely focused on what the task is. And it was the same with us on the battlefield. You know, I, I, one day I I got blown up pretty good and I got a concussion. And you know, five days later, I my ankles were in such bad condition I had to tape them up. And yeah, I'm getting toward all shots and doing whatever was needed and pounding a bunch of coffee right before an op to caffeinate and stimulate. But every single day I'm showing up and throwing down on the battlefield and, and performing at a very high level, you know. And look, it, you know, Hendo, this, this, you know, if we were to look at the top trance version of operators, you know, you, you, black belt judo, jiu-jitsu, wrestling since a kid, you got these huge deadlifts in you. Has there any been uh, you know, in, in or ju like during an operation, has anyone ever got their hands on you and you've been whoa <laughs> stronger than i thought no but I, they've been tougher than i thought okay can you explain that people, sure the afghan people are very tough people they, yeah. these guys grow up in the mountains they've been they're a rough culture they beat the hell out of their kids they beat the hell out of their women they're just a very very rough people so you know i see a lot of law enforcement and stuff i'll say well i'm just going to use these pressure point things and i'm like you're just that only works on compliant people it does not work on a battle-hardened afghan it's lived in a cave mm -hmm. his entire life and has had all these physical struggles you know you could kick them punch them hit them with a shovel you could do anything you want to them and they're going to look at you like it it's nothing they're not phased mm -hmm. by it so you need to be very good at controlling people and using techniques to get them down i think the, the one of the tougher guys i've ever saw on the battlefield and it was the wrong target so he's not even a war fighting guy was a Dagestani. And I remember he tackled one of my guys down and mounted him and was holding him down. He didn't have a weapon on him or anything. And he wasn't striking or doing anything. He was just controlling one of our guys. And uh, me and the next guy that entered the room were laughing. And we're like, what are you going to do now? How are you going to get off the bottom? Because this guy that was on the bottom didn't ever train, right? He's figured, well, I'll just shoot everybody when I go in. They attack me. And he looked like an idiot. And um, I pulled the, the Dagestani off. And I remember I was one of the battlefield interrogators uh, post-operation. And I was asking him, I'm like, where are you from? And he's like, um, from Dagestan. I thought it was a make-believe word. I'd never even heard of it. And But the, nowadays, the, half the UFC is filled with Dagestani. Yeah, absolutely. He's a hotbed of talent. Amazing grapplers that grow up from a very young age. Their whole life. Wrestling bears. And... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then again, they're very hardened people. So that was one of the tougher guys. But, I mean, there's a lot of good fighters that are our enemy, unfortunately. You know, the Chechnyans are very good fighters, which is right next to Dagestan. Mm -hmm. um, we always hated when we would have to conflict with them. And usually those were, they're not even part of the, the culture of Chechnyans. They were just, got completely separated and attached themselves to these terrorist organizations in one way or the other. But 
Yeah, you would run in. You would run into him sometimes. I mean, I saw a big um, Iraqi grab. We launched a dog on him, and he caught the dog in midair and threw it back at us. It's like, oh, okay, here we go. <laughs> yeah, and those dogs are a force to be reckoned with. Oh, meat muscles, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. An hour. Incredible. Hey, no, can I ask? I want to ask your advice to someone um so so there's there's someone sat listening to this who deep down maybe knows they've got way more in themselves but for whatever reason they're just stuck or feeling flat and they're in a bit of a funk and they can't get out of it what would your message be to to that person yeah this this, this isn't abnormal first of all everybody kind of feels this even when i would achieve something at the highest level let's say i won a competition as soon as i stepped off the platform i was depressed again and like, oh, what am I going to do with my life? Like, my purpose had, had gone away. So find something, find, just find that goal that you're trying to achieve and make sure it's a goal that you're really passionate about, that you really care about, and then go all in. And then set up, what is my long-term goal? I reverse engineer the whole thing. So I put on a calendar, like, what my long-term goal is to do this by this date, whatever that task is. And then I start reversing it, like, here's micro goals. I need to have this achievement by this time, this achievement by that time, this achievement by that time psychologically i start preparing and visualize the whole thing out from micro and macro levels and then i start setting well, what does my diet need to be what does my training need to be what, what do i need to be reading how can i prepare better for this and the more you start really dialing in on this focus then the, the more that you're like i'm all in now i'm fully committing to it it's hard the first two weeks the first two weeks are the hardest because you're like okay i gotta get up at four in the morning and i gotta go run or do this or lift or do whatever and but after like two weeks, it becomes natural. And then you start feeling good and all your neuroreceptors and all of your um, neurochemistry is starting to function and flow. And you're getting in into syncing in with circadian rhythms and all these other things that can attach to it. Um, and you really start going, oh, I feel great. I'm better than, I'm happier than I've been before. I'm imp constantly improving. And every now and then I get knocked down a little bit, but that's part of the struggle. And the struggle is how the only way I can get better. I can't just always be doing great. I have to get knocked down every now and then, but that's awesome. And when you do get knocked down, you're like, okay, cool. I can rebuild from here because I was starting to get stagnant or complacent. So let's keep, let's keep pushing the limit just, and not try and go like this, but try and just slow incremental wins for the long, for the Directly long correct. And, and I want to just flip that ever so slightly now from the individual to the organization. So what, what would your advice be? And I imagine some of it would be similar. To what you've just described there to the individual but to at the organizational level to perhaps the leader the manager the owner who's perhaps making some of the things we touched on earlier that you talked about in terms of oh, i just wish my team had the same intensity enthusiasm drive that i feel or i have it's usually the reverse to be honest in my opinion i can get back to it but um it's usually the more senior guys they have a purpose that they want to have achieved Mm -hmm. but they don't have the drive anymore because they've been beaten down <laughs> so much that, um, you know, when the younger guys will come in, we see it quite often, even at the tier one level where young guys come in, like, hey, we want to change this and fix this and adjust this. And, and guy and the older guys, the more senior guys are just like, Oh, you know, I tried that. I mean, the UK is the best in the world at bureaucracy. I, yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, no, yeah. That are, or just as destructive from getting you to your goal as uh, when, when I lived there, but with red tape and things like that. But, um, you know, it's, 
you have to, as a leader and as a burned out guy or whatever, you know, you're yelling at everybody to have purpose, but you're not doing anything yourself because you've lost your drive itself. You're physically not getting up. You're physically not doing the work. You're physically not leading by example. A lot of guys are like, I got two years left till I retire. I'm about done. I just need to coast until I'm there. And I, and you know, I, I, I'll tamper everybody else. I'm not creating waves. Right. The yeah. word the, the military, we always say, Oh, don't want to use up your silver bullet. Like there's some, you've only got so many things you can use that, you know, they, they get you, get you through a situation. It's ridiculous. Um, we tamper down the inspired people, the youth. Uh, it's good to go to your youth and go, Oh, you know, I tried it that way. And, and this is why it didn't work. That's what a leader should do. But a leader should also inspire and, and listen to everybody and go, okay, well, tell me, what are your points? What are your ideas? Let's give it a try. Even if it fails, it's better than doing nothing. Mm -hmm. I would rather you make, if you make five efforts uh, towards a goal and four of them fail and one succeeds, that's a major success because you've gotten out of being stagnant. And I, I saw this all across, um, not just on our level, but also in Silicon Valley. It's the same thing is they, they just take informed risks and uh, take a chance on things. And every now and then, you know, that iPhone or whatever will come out and you're like, okay, well, this is a great product. Even though the 50 phones before didn't, you know, the giant box or whatever, it wasn't working. Yeah. It wasn't personal. Awesome. So tell us, Heather, like your goals now, what are the things on the horizon for you? What are you attacking in, currently and in, in the future? Right. So I have a few things that I do with my security company. Um, when I first got out of the military, I, I did a little bit of, uh, you know, physical bodyguarding things for some CEOs. And then I was just like, I can't be here for you guys all the time. I got a fan. I got to go home. But what I can do is train you and, you know, help you with some few practices to uh, improve your life and make you, make you more safe. So, because if you're more safe, then you're going to be more focused on being prosperous. Uh, I train a lot of daughters that are getting ready to go off to college. Uh, I would say the most that I, uh, people that I train is them because dads are like, Hey, I've, uh, academically prepared her at a very high level to go off to college and but her situational awareness is very weak i'm afraid she's going to become a victim and so and i've taken a lot of those girls even girls that have been victimized and uh just really empowered them and given them their strength back so they're not walking around just in a perpetual state of fear and are capable are becoming capable women at getting out there and being safe and doing all the right things uh to become a strong force because that then trans transfers over from them being safe and secure to them being empowered with their job and, and everything else in their life. I have daughters, so I, I, that it's, pa I, you know, it's a passion for me. I want to make sure that my children are never a victim ever. You know, I want to keep them. I've been training them since they're babies. You know, oh, I know. Like, Absolute killers. So I do that. Um, and I do a lot of coaching. Uh, it just started off. It wasn't something that I intended. It was just, People kind of ask me a lot of questions and I use common sense and reason in my decision-making. So I'm just saying, Hey, here's my opinion on things. And you know, it's, it's kind of spread. Uh, so now I'm, I'm doing a lot more coaching, but I'm only coaching 12 people a year. And I just, not from a biblical standpoint, that was just the number that seems reasonable to me, but um, I kind of put everything into it. I'm where are you at mentally, physically, spiritually, these people aren't my clients. They're my friends. I'm, I'm constantly checking in we you know i'm not great at it because from a business standpoint because i'm like i'm supposed to do two calls a month and just collect my check and you know we're texting each other all the time and i'm constantly calling back and forth 
Because what I've really come to find out is the more that I help people to get out of these stagnant areas and to uh, start performing again and refining these goals and refining their mission in life, is that it's giving me more empathy for people who are outside of what my organization was because I wasn't a very empathetic person. And overall, it's it's making me more well-rounded and become a better human being. So it's selfishly, I'm, I'm getting more out of it than anybody else by helping problem solve their issues. But um, I really enjoy doing it. I really enjoy helping people. And really, I kind of do I do so many different things. It's hard to pigeonhole me into one thing. I help a lot of veterans. I help a lot of first. I've got a kind of a collective of people that I work with that um, are tier one uh, special operators, SWAT team cops, uh, ER doctors and nurses, uh, professional athletes, more fighters than anything else. And I kind of work with them also through integration coaching and just helping them find what their new mission is and kind of resetting their life because they've already achieved the highest in life. But now they've gotten out and they're just become uh, disparaged and they have addictions to pharmaceuticals and things. So I get them all off of their pharmaceuticals. I give them more natural ways of uh, refocusing uh, and nutrition and, and training and uh, goal setting and get their business back on. And so that they work towards being benevolent people to being because if we're going to really help our communities and help our country, we need to be the best that we can be and then have that spread out to our families and friends and then keep going out from a strategic standpoint. Absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to later in the year engaging some of the team building work that we've talked about. And we've, we've been privileged to run um, out in the States where stripping it back um, and using some of the skill sets, I guess, that are, are leveraged in the tier one units that you've talked about today, including yeah. some of the CQC, um surveillance um combat Bloody, yeah. Yeah, yeah and using that as a metaphor to train all these skills that you've been talking about um today um i'd love to finish up with some quick fire questions any historical figure you can grab a coffee or a beer with who's that for you i've never really thought about that alexander the great nice favorite movie um, yeah, Braveheart. Good choice. Yeah, favorite TV series. I don't really watch TV, but uh, oh, um, you know, I kind of i i use escapism when I watch TV. So yeah. I would say, um, uh, God, I just you know, with the dragons and uh, oh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, yeah. For a couple, of, it's been gone for a couple of years. I haven't seen it in a while, but that was probably the only series that I actually watched from the beginning to end. And I watched yeah. a lot of it when I was in combat. But um, you know, when you're, oh, I'm sorry if I'm dragging this portion. No, out no, no, it's great. Like I said, the last thing I want to watch is war fighting. The last thing I want to yeah. watch is you know military stuff or movies and things like that. So I want to have complete escapism, and and that that's a pretty far uh, detached from any of my realities. So. It is. Favorite quote? Oh, I'm the worst quote guy in the world. Um, I guess uh, do you want to others as you want them to nice. you? Yeah, great one. And is there a book you'd recommend people? Purposeful Primitive by Marty Gallagher. Okay. It's a, a human performance book, but it's I've read it probably five times. It just has wonderful anecdotes and stories from the highest levels of uh, powerlifting. He's a wonderful character himself, and the whole book is filled with 
real life characters uh, in the powerlifting world. Brilliant. And last question, if there was one message you could cement into everyone in society so that they would truly understand it, what would that be? Our purpose as human beings is to lift each other up and to focus on being benevolent. You know, we all fall a little bit and we get in these negative self-serving mentalities, especially in the Western culture. Um, I found the cheat code is the more that I help other people, the more that I raise other people up around me, the better my life is. That internal premium uh, is much more than any financial gains that I could get. Incredible. Pendo, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. We'll catch you soon. All right, buddy. See you soon. I always love speaking with Hendo. There's lots to take away from that conversation. It's obviously hard to imagine the pressure of a special forces firefight where life and death decisions can come in milliseconds. An operator like Hendo can't afford to leak one single drop of ability. It's clear from the interview that for Hendo, performance routines were fundamental in helping him to stay laser focused on the task at hand and to consistently deliver everything he had. And most importantly, to achieve mission success. If the question is, what does elite psychology or emotional control look like? Then the answer is that outliers like Hendo possess three switches, on, control, and off. Just like we have components of physical fitness, power, endurance, agility, strength, cardiovascular coordination, so on. For me, there are three crucial components of psychological fitness in terms of elite performance that I want to maximize personally and professionally with everyone I work with. First is the on switch. This is where you plug into the unconscious brain, which is the source of all elite performance, where all your skills are stored and gives you that ability to fire on all cylinders. Second is the control switch. This is activated when you notice the emotional brain taking charge, when panic has the potential to set in, and when flicked, this control switch hands back the power supply to the unconscious or your frontal brain. Third is the off switch. This unplugs all three brains completely so you can actually detach, relax, and reap the benefits that recovery, rest, and relaxation bring, chiefly growth. If you want some more context on this, then revisit the lessons from episode two with Chris Billum-Smith, where we outline how this works in more depth. Now, these switches are important as any technical skill and not only for the purposes of performing well, but for the sake of having a life. When you learn to flick each switch, you maximize your performance along with your quality of life and health alongside and after achievement. Flicking the switch is a skill, and like any skill, it can be developed. When practiced, we can supersede our natural impulse to panic and become the master of our emotions instead of their servant. The paradox is that we very rarely think about training psychological skills in the same way we train technical or physical skills. We must remind ourselves that like any skill, we must invest methodology, time and energy to develop and maintain this psychological capacity. The good news is that emotions are built by you, not built into you. You possess an unbelievable tool, your brain, which can make you confident, move you from panic to calm, and switch you off from the world completely if and when required. The question is, 
How do you flick the switch like Hendo does and seize control when chaos strikes? Well, in psychology, what we call performance routines are the switches we can flick. They comprise a series of actions that generate a desired emotional state. The sequence of your thoughts and actions is what generates the emotions you experience. If you change the routine, the type and sequence of thoughts and actions you engage in, you can change the results. In effect, which brain you switch on, what emotions you feel, and what actions you ultimately take. Just like tuning a radio into that perfect frequency, executing a routine tunes you into the optimal emotions that performance may require from you at that time. Performance routines are punctuated by a very deliberate set of actions with a clear purpose to give you control over your emotions. A clear process to follow mitigates the tendency to dwell in the moment and overthink, which prevents the power supply diverting to your emotional brain. But routines also put you in charge, switching you from reactive to proactive, bringing focus and calm, even when on the outside there's chaos and disorder. The perfect routine is going to be unique to each individual, their challenges, experiences, environments. Excellence is highly personal, and so are your emotions. But they all follow some very predictable patterns. And that's what we're going to focus on now. I want to talk you through an example control switch routine, outlining the series of steps that an outlier like Hendo might undertake in order to regulate any negative emotions, be it anxiety, fear, or frustration, when they inevitably set in from time to time so that you can bounce back fast and perform. The Mindset app is going to be chock full of performance routines like this that you can use when you need to flick the on-off or control switch. So if you find this useful, check the link in description to check out the free guided version the next time you need to flick a switch. It normally starts like this. All is going fine and then suddenly whack. Something happens and it triggers negative emotion, be it stress, frustration, anger or anxiety. Let's just call them redhead. Uh, that's okay. This is part of performance and part of life. And acknowledging that's really important. The focus, however, is of course on flicking the switch and bouncing back fast. We have three areas to optimize. First, where you focus your attention, we want to bring it away from the stressor and into the present moment. Second, your energy expenditure, we want to dial it right down. And third, the quality of your emotions, we want soothing, calm, positive emotions. The first step is to congratulate yourself. Emotional control always begins with awareness. The awareness that you're in redhead or a suboptimal state is always the first small victory. So the second you're aware, you need to congratulate yourself on winning that first battle. The next thing you want to think is hit mute. Don't text back. Don't take the call. Don't make the decision. Don't try to fix it yet. Just pause. Much of what you think and say at this point will be extreme or exaggerated. Your mood is temporary, but once your words, messages, or emotions are out there, you can't put them back. Next up, as soon as you've noticed you're not where you want to be emotionally, you need to act. By initiating action, you take ownership of the situation. The immediate dialogue of your emotional brain when redhead strikes looks like, I can't get out of bed, this is so unfair. I'm going to kill him. Your first objective is to intercept this pattern of thinking, overriding your emotional brain before it can get too much momentum. A great way to do this is with a distraction countdown. This goes something like, on my count of five, get up and clap your hands. So if we were to literally try it on now, it would go like this. Get up on the count of five, four, three, two, one. 
clap your hands together. And two amazing things just happened doing this process. One, you've just given yourself time to pause. And two, you've given yourself distraction from the event. We're all different. If you prefer to count from 10 to 1, 3 to 1, slap your thighs, stretch up and out, do whatever works for you. Sometimes just counting to 10 can allow a storm to pass. Your next objective is to get a grip of your attention. If you're thinking about the future, if you're thinking about the past, then you're not thinking about what you're doing right now in the present, which is where we want your attention. We're going to do so using a series of grounding exercises to combat this. Grounding is basically all about reconnecting to the present by bringing your attention to a specific point. Again, let's try it on now. In your head or out loud, I want you to answer the following questions. First, I want you to recite your name, your age, where you are, who else is there? Now, I want you to just notice, simply notice five things you can see. Anything that grabs your attention. And now, four things you can hear. Three things you can feel. Two, you can smell. And one, you can taste. Using your basic human senses, sight, hearing, smell, touch, taste, like you just have, allows you to very quickly bring your attention away from the past or future and reconnect your brain and body into the present moment. Your next aim is to switch off the stress hormones that fuel the negative, uh, anxious feelings. And then we want to drive feelings of positivity and calm. A quick, easy way to initiate this is through optimizing your posture. In as little as 60 seconds, it's been proven that through optimizing your posture, you, you can reduce the production of the stress hormones, cortisol, adrenaline, noradrenaline, and increase the super six feel-good chemicals, the serotonin and andamide, oxytocin, endorphins, dopamine, and norepinephrine that characterize a bluehead state. So right now, if you're slouching, fix it. If your chin is tucked, fix it. If your neck is bent, fix it. If your arms and legs are crossed, spread them out now. Occupy some space. Widen your stance. I don't want your hands anywhere near your face. I want you to pull your shoulders back, lift your chest, relax through your arms, soften your brow, lift your chin up and hold your head high. And smile, even if you don't feel like it. Smile now. If you can't bring yourself to do that, put a pen pencil in your mouth. This will elicit similar effects. If you follow the instructions so far, right now your brain is switching off the adrenaline taps and will have activated the release of some of the feel-good chemicals. Your biology can lead your psychology, and that's kind of where we're going with this. But there's always going to be a lag, so stick with me. We want to continue optimizing your energy. We need to hack your hormone levels. You're going to do that now by focusing on your breathing. You need to control your breathing or your breathing will control you. This is the fastest way to shift the hormone levels in your brain. We've all heard it from Hendo. You're going to inhale for a count of four, pausing at the top of the breath before exhaling with a loud, audible sigh for a count of around eight. Again, with a slight pause at the bottom of the breath before repeating this two or three times. I'm going to count you through the first breath now. You can close your eyes if you want. I want you to inhale for one, two, three, four, and then pause for a moment and then exhale with a loud audible sigh for eight, 
seven six five four three two and one again pausing at the bottom of the breath before you repeat this pattern remember we're inhaling for around four seconds pausing at the top of the breath and then exhaling with that loud audible sigh for around that eight second count before that slight pause again and then rolling into the third breath nice work if you've given it a go when your breath is short, shallow, and irregular, it stimulates the production of three stress hormones called salt, noradrenaline, and adrenaline. Your mind and body will be all over the place. When your breath is deep and stable, so are you. You stimulate the production of the super six neurochemicals we talked about that make you feel good. Consequently, your mind becomes calm and controlled. The sigh fills your lungs with more than your normal breath would, which helps oxygenate your brain and body, giving a relieving effect through stimulating your vagus nerve, which is the only way you can consciously signal to your emotional brain to relax. This lowers your heart rate and reduces your blood pressure. And again, we're using biology to lead our psychology. And for that reason, I want you to try and retain this pattern of breathing for the rest of this session, but also generally whenever you're experiencing redhead moments. The counting is also great as it occupies your attention, making it difficult for your emotional brain to regain or continue with any momentum it might have. The work we've done so far should have halted the emotional brain from at least running riot. Now, it's time to bring some logic to the party. Let's start with getting some perspective. First, it's important for you to remember that in Redhead, your emotional brain will overestimate the challenge in this moment. Secondly, we forget that our emotional state is temporary. Just like all the great things that happen, this negative event and these negative feelings will pass. Thirdly, you need to remember that the feelings you're experiencing physically and emotionally are perfectly normal. No one gets to avoid this. No one. And anyone that says otherwise is a psychopath, dead, or a liar. So give yourself the permission to be human. You're not special in this respect. Equally, there's nothing wrong with you. Four, excellence is volatile. There are no straight lines to the top. Maybe you're losing, you mess something up, you're behind schedule. It's not totally unexpected. You will mess up from time to time. This is par for the course. Five, failure, challenge, uncertainty is potential for improvement. For the most part, challenges help you identify areas you can optimize and can lead you to make crucial corrections that lead you to adapting to a superior level. The aim, of course, in acknowledging these points is that they should act like a little bit of a release valve, reducing your perceptions of the demands imposed on you. We're going to continue using logic in the form of what we call Socratic dialogue to assist us in transitioning the power supply from the emotional brain to the frontal brain. I want you to reflect on the following questions. One, how many times have you encountered this emotional state before? Two, how many times has it been useful? Three, how often have the causes actually been as catastrophic as you thought they might be? The reality is the outcomes are unlikely to be anywhere near as bad as you probably think. Four, how will this situation affect you in a month? How will this situation affect you in a year? And how will this situation affect you in three years? These questions can further help you unravel the futility of being emotional, which assists your emotional brain to accept logic here and start to let the issue go. Great job so far. How are you feeling? I want you to stick with me. If you follow the process so far, again, changes will be en route. There's always 
that lag, unfortunately. So just stick with it. You'll get there. Next on our list is how you're talking to yourself. The way you talk to yourself impacts the way you feel. There are three things I want from you right now. One, replace any statements like, I am tense, I am frustrated, I am stressed, to this is tense, this is annoying, or this is stressful. I am insinuates your failures are who you are, an identity. This is more accurately states that your failures are temporary, which, of course, they are. Two, I want you to replace I can't with I don't know how yet. The former suggests that the situation is final, which is not true. There are always solutions out there, and your responsibility now is to go and find it, which you will. Every problem has a solution, else by definition, it's not a problem. It doesn't mean it'll be easy, but there are always solutions. And if you bring the right strategy and effort, you'll find them. Thirdly, replace negative actions like stop looking down, you look so nervous, with positive actions along the lines of lift your chin up, look up, and make eye contact. Focusing on the threat encourages victimhood and triggers more redhead. Rather than things to avoid, give yourself positive actions to achieve. Focus on the goal. This draws your energy and attention to the solution and the opportunity which lies within it, which is to display confident behavior and get back on top. Next up, I want you to reduce your perceptions of the demands placed on you. When you perceive that your demands exceed your capacity, the product is redhead. Therefore, one way to get back into green or blue is to reduce your demands. One way we can lighten the load is by adjusting our timeframe expectations. So narrow your focus down to what you feel you can cope with, even if it's the next breath. Focus on taking that next breath and then the next one. Then maybe you can focus on the next 10 seconds from there, perhaps the next minute, the next five minutes, so on, so forth. If you can't think about tomorrow, because right now, it's just too overwhelming. That's fine. Don't. One of the best things you can do when you're faced with crisis is to shorten your time frame. We can build victory by focusing on just one tiny step at a time. Another option is to just forget about it for now, at least. Everything feels urgent and important in Redhead. Reality is, it's probably not. If it's not urgent and important, I want you to just park it. A third option is to temporarily reduce your standards. When something feels too stressful, terrifying, or you're blocked and the answers just aren't flowing, you need to temporarily lower your standards to a threshold that you can confidently deal with and that you're actually prepared to deal with, no matter how small or low that might be. For people like us who set high expectations, most of the pressure we feel is self-imposed. The reality is that you at 50% is probably enough to move the situation forward at a minimum. Option four, reduce the size and scale. It's highly likely you're trying to do too much in one go. Your level of stress can be attributed to the complexity of your problems. And breaking a complex problem down means solutions become easier to find. Instead of writing the presentation, solving the problem, replying to the email, just write down the five to 10 things the presentation, problem, or email needs to cover. The aim is to move from one insurmountable challenge to a series of achievable challenges to a long list of easy wins. And as you do this, your perceptions of the battle you face will gradually shrink. You'll start to lean in, to commit, and that glint in your eye will return. And then suddenly you're back in the fight. Small wins can spiral you back on track fast, growing 
your appetite for the next challenge. So cut the challenge down to size, deconstructing it into smaller and smaller challenges. A fifth option is that in Redhead, you zero in on the problem or the first solution that comes to mind. And this makes it really hard to consider alternative options. The reality is that the challenges in front of you have a variety of solutions. I'm going to throw you a series of questions that will bump start the creative problem solving part of your brain. First up, what would the solution look like if it was simple? What's the last thing the opposition, competition or enemy would expect you to do? If you only had a day to deliver the result, how would you do it? What could magic away this problem? More money, a bigger network, temporarily working like a Spartan? How could you eliminate parts of the problem altogether? Whatever the problem, you're probably not the first and almost definitely won't be the last. Sometimes it's not how, but who? Who solved this problem before? Who could you ask for help? Who could you delegate it to? Okay, good work so far. To recap, we've interrupted the emotional cascade and slowed down the onslaught. Benefits are incoming. We've also activated your frontal logical brain to start taking control back. Again, benefits will be en route. There's always that lag, so you need to stick with the process. We're going to keep building momentum, this time by providing a structure for action. Whatever the challenge, there are always opportunities to counter, to innovate, to overcome. It's all well and good avoiding or deflecting your opponent's punches, but to excel, you must be ready to actually strike back and exploit the opportunity presented. This is, of course, called countering. In boxing, the counterpunch immediately follows the attack launched by your opponent that exploits the opening created in their guard. Now, with the counterattack front and center, you engage your offensive spirit, activating your predatory blue head. This transcends you from a rabbit in the headlights to a lion on the hunt. As you do so, you unleash more and more of your psychological firepower, the blue head hormones that are the catalyst for all your creative breakthroughs, problem solving, and the confidence and motivation to find a way forward, even if only a trickle to begin with. So how do we do this? Well, one way is through adopting your alter ego. You know what you need to achieve and you know the behavior needed to achieve it. But sometimes you just feel conflicted or insecure about exhibiting certain behaviors. Enter the alter ego. It provides you with some interpersonal distance that can make you feel more comfortable exhibiting whatever these behaviors might be. This helps you amplify sparks of positivity and proactivity. So how do we do it? Take a moment to pick someone optimized to overcome the challenge at hand. This could be you at your absolute best, in your prime, or someone you look up to, a friend, a fictional character, colleague, celebrity, or family member, perhaps even Hendo himself. I want you to try this now. Select someone better, not perfect. Better is fine. Whoever you've picked, I want you to reflect now. What would this person say to themselves in the situation you're in? How would they stand? What are they thinking? How would they feel? What behavior do you think they demonstrate to seize control? What opportunities might they see in this situation? And what actions would they potentially consider? Good job on reflecting there. Now, if you're following me through this routine, you should be feeling a greater sense of calm and control. Your energy and attention should be appropriately directed now towards finding solutions. But to really grip this situation, the next step is we have to behave 
to become. The secret behind people that appear to be all over life is that they don't wait to feel great before they get after it. They just do it. They know that their feelings follow their actions. You need to change your behavior first and trust that your feelings will follow. You could call this fake it till you make it, but starting is the hardest part. You gain momentum as you go. In physics, activation energy is the initial spark needed to catalyze a reaction. The same activation energy, both physically and psychologically, is needed for you to overcome your inertia and kickstart yourself into action. The message is, if you want to feel more confident, smile, look others in the eye and ask questions. Or if you want to get more work done, sit down and do some, even if it's just for five minutes. If you want to work hard, ignore distractions, actively listen and go the extra mile. The key thing is that when you don't have confidence, resilience or motivation, it's actually easier to behave yourself into these states rather than think your way. By regulating the action, which is under your direct control, you can indirectly regulate the feeling, which is not. It might feel like action follows feeling, but really action and feeling go together. This acts as a complete interruption, enabling you to take control. So in order to maintain your positive trajectory and to continue to build, what you need to do now is decide on what you're going to do to profit from this challenge you've encountered. You have four options. All four are a form of taking action, activating your predatory circuitry. The one thing you can't do is nothing. Inaction is not an option for you. So option one, if something obvious has jumped into your head now, now is the time to execute on it in terms of action. Anxious feelings are very often your unconscious mind prompting you to take action and deal with the challenge in front of you. You'll probably find that as soon as you take action, the negative feelings will begin to subside. If there's something obvious you can do that's popped into your head that you want to do and that you feel capable of doing, then go and do it. Alternatively, take ownership of your immediate environment. If you're in the office, training ground or at home, look around for something that needs fixed, then get up and fix it. This is a classic make your bed, write your to-do list, draft the email, write for two minutes, make a call. Again, fixing something, no matter how small, gives you that spike in the super six feel-good hormones. This is what catalyzes that small win that can very quickly spiral upwards. Option two, download. If there are no obvious areas of attack right now, then that's fine. Another option for you is to download your thoughts and feelings to yourself through a journal, notes on your phone, or a call with a colleague, friend, family member. A problem shared is a problem halved and all that. Sometimes letting the emotional brain tire itself out before attempting to domesticate it is the most sensible option. Expressing the emotion can act like a release valve that allows the emotional brain to enter a state where it will actually listen to reason or maybe even switch off entirely. This could be a 60-minute download to a friend, a five-minute riff to a colleague in the office. Your only obligation is to choose wisely, someone you trust who's not going to wallow in your self-pity. For now, Keep it private, safe, and only if you've controlled the arousal. Option three, the physical check-in. This part is so important. I want it to become a regular course of action for you throughout your day, like brushing your teeth is. It should almost be your instant go-to whenever you feel the onset of redhead. A thudding heartbeat, racing mind, sweat streaming down your brow. This is not necessarily anxiety. However, when you experience these symptoms, your emotional brain starts to search for predictions to explain these physical sensations. 
if it's three o'clock and something's kicked off and your only source of fuel for the day so far is the four Americanos you consumed at 150 milligrams plus of caffeine per hit because you skip breakfast and miss lunch. And now you're jogging on the spot with steam coming from your ears. You probably don't need to question your existential dilemmas. Instead, you need to answer the following five questions. One, are you breathing properly? You should be, seen as about 10 minutes ago, you've been instructed to. If you're not, fix it now. Two, how thirsty are you on a scale of one to 10? 10 being zero thirst. Chances are, if you're below seven, you could be up to 2% of your body weight dehydrated. This can reduce your ability to think by up to and over 20%. Fix it now. Go and hydrate. I know so many Olympic programs where athletes literally get fined if they don't have a bottle of water at arm's length. This is so important. Three, do you need to go to the toilet? Quite simply, restricting the urge to go is going to spike your blood pressure and your stress hormones. If so, go fix it now. Four, on a scale of one to 10, how hungry are you? If you're below a six or seven, your blood sugar could be low. This is going to leave you extremely susceptible to negative emotions and has terrible effects on your decision making. Go eat something now. Five, are you putting away too much caffeine? Caffeine is a stimulant. Its jittery effects are the same as those you experience in a frightening event. So if you hit the redhead routine, let's cut it out for the next 24 hours at least. Look, the message here is that you must listen to your brain and body. They can trigger hunger, thirst, or make you aware that you're in a suboptimal state, but you have to act on what they're telling you. Your fourth and final option, engage your mind. At this stage of the control switch routine, your aim is to continuously positively activate your brain's calm control trajectory that you've set so far. This could include a walk alone or with a friend. It could include exercise, listening to music that conjures energy, prayer that summons strength, story that inspires positivity, conversation that rallies confidence. They all have the power to make the hair on the backs of our necks stand up. Music can perform the function of a time machine. Single song, lyrics, tempo, mood can take you back to a time or place or set emotions off like nothing else can. Classical music has been proven to deactivate the stress hormones that we associate with redhead. The intricate patterns and gradually unfolded textures can be like a perfect soundtrack for decompression and calm. Prayer is another obvious act that can bring us into the moment if relevant to you. Bring in hope, showing gratitude, narrowing your focus into the now. Few of the reasons it's so powerful. Inspiring TED Talks, YouTube clips from expert performers, finding inspirational or poignant talks that you resonate with that can be really effective uh, in terms of helping you flick the switch and bounce back to the optimal state for you. The key thing here is your connection with the material is meaningful and bespoke to you. After all, you are the expert on you. If you want something to do to engage your mind, you need to go and create your own emotional control playlist on Spotify, YouTube, or Audible right now. Look, hopefully by now your negative emotions are starting to subside and you have less negative energy coursing through you. Maybe you even felt a jolt of positive energy return. I appreciate some of you are just listening to this as an example routine. But if you have followed this control switch example and given it a go, 
then congratulations on being the sort of person that identifies that they have an area to optimize in terms of this psychological skill and have taken control of the situation by initiating action and following this routine. That alone is why the probability is high you'll get through most of the challenges you're going to be presented with and will most likely emerge way stronger from doing so. The vast majority of people act like they're slaves to their emotional states. And if you followed this emotional routine, then you haven't. So congratulations. You're now in an exclusive group of people that don't wallow in their self-pity. You identify your problems and do something about it. This is outlier behavior. So congratulations for engaging in it. The thing I love most about this routine is that every time you follow the process, you literally rewire your brain's default pattern response for dealing with challenge. So the more you follow it, the stronger this skill will get. And eventually it will just become your default response to dealing with challenges that you'll inevitably be presented with. And this is what I love about routines. You're rewiring the way your brain responds to challenge. It's like a mind gym. Your psychological fitness for dealing with challenge grows and grows. And there's no end to how far you can take this. Remember, emotional control is a skill. And like any skill, the more you do it, the better you get at it. The first time is the hardest. Keep up the good work. And remember, I'm always here to support you on this journey. If you feel like you can benefit from routines like this, then check in and follow the link in the description to access more guided performance routines through the Mindset app. I just want to say a massive thank you to Hendo. I really appreciate your time, mate. Can't wait to see you in Miami soon. And uh, yeah, absolute pleasure to have you on the pod. Thank you for choosing to spend your time with us today. I love this topic of human performance and excellence and I've been engaged in it neurotically for the last 20 years. It's a sincere privilege to have the opportunity to share my knowledge, network and learnings with you. Now, go and put the principles to work. Make sure you let us know what resonates. Reach out with questions. Blind spots, we've got you covered. Remember, excellence is just a series of days repeated over and over again. Now, go and win your day. In 2021, I published my first book, Accelerating Excellence. If you're finding the conversations and information on this podcast useful, you might want a physical reference point and to gain even deeper awareness of the concepts discussed. The book's actually more of an operation manual containing more detail with a step-by-step -step guide on how to implement all this stuff so you can get maximum benefit, which was one of my main motivations in writing it. Yes, I want the podcast and the book to be inspiring and entertaining, but it was non-negotiable for me to make sure that the listener or reader is provided with a structure and direction in terms of actually putting this stuff to work. The book's called Accelerating Excellence. It's a number one international bestseller. And if you're moving from more than just interest towards implementation, I think you'll really enjoy it. Like everything I do, the book is evidence-based, but practice-led, drawing on my experience, working with some of the world's most elite, exclusive, high-performing teams and individuals. It's filled with highly actionable strategies you can apply today to become better tomorrow. If this sounds like something from you, see the link in description where you can download six chapters of the book for free in either audio or digital format. It's also available to purchase on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and at your local bookstore. I hope you enjoy. By now, we all know the importance of a winning mindset. We're bombarded with elite performers telling us that mindset's what separates the best from the rest. That if we want to be successful, we need to be more confident, resilient, and motivated. And of course, when panic strikes, we need to calm down, relax, or chill out. 
great. We get it. But the question is how? We're given this guidance with almost zero practical advice in terms of how to achieve it. Where can we actually go to develop that world-class mindset? What's the back squat for resilience, the bench press for confidence, and the bicep curl for positive thinking? Well, that's why I created the Mindset app. Through the app, you'll gain access to the psychological skills training used by world champion athletes, special forces operators, and some of the world's most successful traders and investors. The reality is these guys pay me a fortune to help them get this right. But the thing is, these skills are equally, if not more important for the aspiring athlete, executive or operator. And that's exactly why I created this app. I want these tools and training available to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Mindset is a skill and like any skill, it can be developed with the right strategy and effort. The tools and techniques are designed in a way that will literally rewire your brain. Like learning to ride a bike or drive a car, all the techniques are designed with creating a high-performing, self-regulating U2.0. Every strategy in the Mindset app is backed by empirical research. There's 10-minute emotional control training exercises that have been shown to increase your ability to overcome detrimental decision-making biases by up to 80%. In another study, just three weeks of executing visualization training led to 34% improvements in performance. Another research group found 50% greater improvements in the rate of learning. And just a few weeks of performing visualization led to 22% reductions in anxiety and 21% increases in confidence. These numbers are phenomenal. And I've never met an elite performer in any domain that can afford to be missing out on this type of edge. What I love most is that we've structured everything so that you don't need to carve out an extra hour in your day to get this done. Small bite-sized chunks of five to 10 minutes are all it takes. In fact, I'd only encourage you to use the tool on your commute, in the sauna, at the end of your working day, or bolt it onto the end of your gym session. Any dead time you have can now immediately be transformed to deliver you extreme performance gains. My goal is to remove every possible obstacle to your development. And with that in mind, the basic package is completely free. Visit the link in description and sign up for our pre-launch free emotional control, visualization, and performance routine programs. I really hope you enjoy.